Welcome to A Better Story Podcast. Uh, And I say this every time, but I especially mean it this time. I have an amazing conversation for you. It's with the one and only Barbara Brown Taylor. If you're not familiar with Barbara's work, uh, she is insightful, she is wise, funny, direct, uh, and this conversation will hopefully give you a taste of that. Barbara is a former pastor and professor and an incredibly accomplished writer and speaker. She's been on the New York Times bestseller list. She's been named one of Time Magazine's People of the Year. She's been interviewed by Oprah and now me. Just just kidding. Not even close to the same thing. But behind all of those accomplishments is wisdom and insights and intellect uh, that is so needed today. So she sat down to talk about her new book called Holy Envy. It's a patient, humble, curious exploration of other faith traditions from her own really broad, generous Christian perspective. So go check out that book, Holy Envy. She's also uh, on a book tour right now, so you can hear her talk about Holy Envy. Visit BarbaraBrownTaylor.com to find out when she is going to be in a city near you. And with that, enjoy this conversation with Barbara Brown Taylor. So I'm curious, why uh, why this book now? You've written about a lot of different things. Why interfaith dialogue? Uh, in, more than interfaith dialogue, your own exploration of other faith traditions. Yeah, thanks for, for updating that, because in some ways, interfaith dialogue, I'm not even sure what it means, but the willingness to know more about my neighbor seems like what it's about. Um, there are two reasons I did this. One is I never write a book unless someone has been or a lot of people have been asking me questions that they want to know more about and they can't find anything to read. So more and more people were asking me about relationships um, between traditions, sort of what constituted disloyalty to one's own. You know, at one point, at one point, did you make Jesus mad? You know, could you, could you meditate? Could you do yoga? So, so there was a reason to look at the topic. And then I had been teaching world religions at the college level for a long time. So my heart was there already. I'd been doing that with college students a long time. So the book was a natural. Yeah. You, um, the interfaith dialogue just kind of rolls off my tongue because it's one of those phrases that gets tossed around a lot. Um, And I don't think I know what it means either. And I also don't know that I find it very, not that it's not compelling. Um, When I think of interfaith dialogue, I think of people rightly or wrongly conflating religions, kind of sanding off the hard edges, um, sort of for the sake of coexisting. And what I love is when you write and talk about your exploration of other faiths, you are not sanding down the edges. You're talking about the differences, um, but not in a hypercritical way, in a kind of a inquisitive way. Um, I'm curious why you took that approach and why was that important for you? It was important in the classroom because there is a kind of peace-loving impulse in college students uh, who don't want to fight with their roommates or the people on their their teams. And so they'll go for any lowest common denominator that makes for friends. And while I wanted to to use that as really good fuel for the course, I, I also did not want to mislead them into thinking that there, that there are not irreconcilable differences between traditions because there are irreconcilable differences between them. But that doesn't mean fisticuffs and it, and it doesn't mean you have to erase people from the board. So finding the right back and forth between those two seemed crucial if I wanted the course to be any use to them in their real lives in the world and and not just manufacture a bunch of naive 
um, people. Yeah, I, I understand the impulse to sand down the edges because of how much conflict we have uh, traditionally in bloodshed we've uh, has come at the hands of religious conflict, but I don't think it does us any favors either at this point. So I appreciate that. And also, I think we could all do better at understanding religion never comes by itself. It always comes with foreign policy. It comes with culture, ethnicity, economics, gender relationships. It comes with all the rest of it. Often when people fight about religion, I want to know a lot more about who makes how much there and how have decisions of the global community affected the community, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think religion is isolatable. Absolutely. That uh, is a very key distinction that I appreciate. There is a metaphor that you used in your writing about how um, at certain points you felt like the well of your own tradition was running dry. Uh, and you were thinking about going to other wells of other traditions. Um, I have often kind of wrestled with that question myself. And um, folks can read the book and see kind of how that pans out for you. Um, but I'm curious, how do you know when your well has run dry, um, when it's time to explore another well, another tradition? I'll tell you the answer for me. And I love that you just used the word curious. I knew that my Episcopal well was getting low when I had just terrific curiosity about other traditions, how other traditions approached God, got along with each other, what their views were of things. But I was so busy being a Christian pastor, it didn't really make sense for me to explore that very far. It wasn't my job. And also, I think because I was a full-time pastor, it's easy to conflate vocation you know, with interest in other traditions, but on both counts, both because I was running pretty dry professionally, vocationally, and because I was curious about things that were outside the boundaries of, of my chosen way of being Christian, that it seemed like time to take a walk. That's sort of what you do, it seems like, is kind of meander around other traditions in a <laughs> inquisitive sort of way. Um, Ultimately, um, not, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. You did not decide to convert to another faith. Uh, you're still writing from a very broad and generous uh, Christian standpoint. What brought about that realization that you could keep going to your own well? So as someone who has in my life benefited greatly from yoga and meditation and even practicing Sabbath in a Jewish kind of way, I'm naturally drawn to what's sometimes called interspirituality. Um, but it's kind of like speaking Esperanto. You know, after a while, it occurred to me that there was no way to leave my native language, nor did I want to, because dry or not, the Christian well, the Episcopal well in particular, was my direct line to the source. So, for that reason, among many, many others, I thought the best way to be multilingual was to be really good at my own language. Yeah, I mean, talking about religion having sort of intertwining context and influence, I think um, the more I look at other faiths and even admire other faiths, I often I realize more how at home uh, Christianity is for me. Even if I have a lot of bones to pick with it, there's still uh, this sort of... Um, safe space uh, that I kind of keep returning to, which you articulate really well. Safe and, and explored. I think 
in my tradition, I know nuances of history and practice and who fell off what cliff where, things I don't have the beginning of any knowledge about in, in other major traditions. So I, I identify with the safety piece, but also just with the advanced work in, in my own tradition. I think the, the wisdom that comes from that and the self critique that can come from that are both helpful. And, you know, while we're talking about it, let's not lose the piece that Christians often eye other Christian traditions, don't they? I mean, I, as an Episcopalian, so flirted with the Quakers that that was, you know, the the group that I felt most simpatico with within the, the way big tent of Christianity. So perhaps people can understand something about a title like Holy Envy just by knowing sometimes some of us envy other Christian traditions and the way they do things. Yeah, I realized that a few years ago when I every book that I would loan out to someone or recommend was um, from a Catholic nun or priest. I was like, <laughs> oh, I have a deep affinity for Catholicism, even though I'm probably never going to convert to it. Um well, we kind of mentioned this earlier, and you just mentioned the title of the book, Holy Envy. Um, you, to, to revisit a metaphor that I kind of touched on earlier, you walk around other faith traditions in a sort of unhurried, um, non-anxious way, which is a really uh, wonderful trait when it comes to looking at other faith traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks, I want them to sort of read and explore Holy Envy in an unhurried way. But in a uh, more hurried podcast context, uh, can you give us just a kind of a taste of what you mean by holy envy and what that concept is about? Sure. I stole it from Christer Stendhal, who was a New Testament scholar and later in his life, chaplain at Harvard Divinity School, where he had been dean. And then he was deeply involved in especially Jewish Christian dialogue in Jerusalem um, way on into his 70s and 80s. He was Bishop of Stockholm when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints built a grand new temple there, and he was called upon to diffuse tension um, by talking to people about that new development. And he at that time proposed what he called the three rules for religious understanding— Um, Number one was, if you want to understand another religion, ask its adherents and not its critics. Number two is don't compare your best to their worst. And number three was to leave room for holy envy. And he never said much about number three, but I thought it was such a great phrase. It was, um, what, oxymoronic? Is that the word oxymoron when the two sides don't go together? So I I took that title, and, and it also described my my um my own attitude pretty well yeah i think it's a good one i think it draws people in and kind of sets the tone uh for what you're doing and speaking of what you're doing one of the things again that i really appreciated about your approach to this uh exploration of other faiths is you aren't trying to like summarize them from a christian perspective or even give a christian take on them you're you're, again, you're kind of a tourist in, uh, in these other faith traditions. Um, I wonder, and there's something maybe counterproductive to this, but I still I want to try it. Um, I wonder if you could just give us a snapshot uh, of different faith traditions and what you envy and appreciate about them. If I, if I throw a tradition at you and you can maybe just draw a piece out uh, from that tradition, is that okay with you? 
Yeah, I'll do that. And as a preface, I'll say that what holy envy means to me is that I can admire what I see of the divine at work outside my own tradition without being disloyal to my tradition. That that uh, holy envy, which we can continue to parse, uh, means I'm not a traitor to my own if I see things in other traditions that are lovely to me. So yeah, throw yeah, me some religion. Absolutely, here. thanks. And I also say uh, you are not pretending to be an expert in these religions either, which I uh, really admire. So you're taking a very measured approach. So no, there there are plenty of good intro to world religions textbooks, and I'm not capable of writing <laughs> one. All right. Well, uh, let's start with uh, Hinduism. What do you find appealing and envious in Hinduism? Well, first of all, there's probably no such thing. I mean, Hinduism ends up being the name for every religious expression in the subcontinent of India. Houston Smith called Hinduism the great psychologist of the world religions because there are so, so, so many combinations um, in, in terms of approaches to the divine, you know, even a school of Hinduism that thinks it's a terrible mistake to leave any room for deities because they're just distractions from divine union. So Hinduism, what I envied and loved was, it's not even like multiple paths. It's just like the broadest path imaginable, though I don't doubt there's enmity and whatever between some of them. So Hinduism, huge, huge um, generousness in terms of individual approaches to the divine. Yeah, I got to say, of all the chapters in the book, I think um, I maybe most appreciated your chapter on Hinduism, your exploration of it, because it you brought that out in such an enlightening way. Um, I Hinduism is so broad to me that I didn't even know where to start. And you <laughs> you highlighted that and pointed out how that's actually one of the most beautiful things about it, which I loved. Uh, yeah, one Swami told me I was thinking in terms of a shop, and I needed to think in terms of a shopping mall. Yes. <laughs> with, with, yeah, such a good metaphor. Uh, let's go to one that you have said that you really uh, admire, Buddhism. I think I'm not the only Christian who really feels at home there, and it's got to be the compassion piece that draws me, because at least in one school of Buddhism, it's all about um, helping one another, you know, diminishing suffering, not only in other human beings and myself, but all sentient beings. But what I love most about it today is there's no war with science in Buddhism. The Dalai Lama has said more than once that if physicists prove the universe works another way that conflicts with the teachings of Buddhism, then Buddhism will change its teachings. So I've, I've always appreciated that. Since I come from the deep south where religion is frequently at war with science. Um, and I also think Buddhism and its central teachings really trust the practitioner. I think the Buddha would have been perfectly happy saying, try it out. And if it doesn't work for you, you know, be on your way. So there's a lot of trust in the practice itself to either deliver fruit or not. Yeah, it has a very non-coercive feel as an outsider um, where a lot of other well, where a lot of versions of Christianity can feel um, not full, a little anxiety prone, a little um, like they have a tight hold on belief and dogma and those sort of things. I don't get that impression with Buddhism. Yeah, you know, since we talked about the well, it was um, always wonderful to take students to Buddhist places of study or devotion because they went expecting to be evangelized. And really quickly it became apparent that wasn't going to happen. 
what I like to think of is that Buddhism has a well and they offer you the cup, but they don't make you buy the cup. You're just welcome to help yourself. Have some water and, and go on your way. But you're right. The coerciveness is missing. It's just not there. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, let's go to another uh, another one that you wrote really beautifully and powerfully about, and that's uh, Islam. I am glad that you that you like that chapter. It's of course the hardest one to write right now because there is so much um, negative press out there. What I what I most admire in my experience of Islam, which is in this country, it's in it's U.S. so it's U.S. flavored, but the embodied prayer. And especially embodied group prayer, because I'm a Christian who goes to the back pew and sits all by myself to say my prayers. I get as far away from everybody else as I can. And you can't do that if you go to prayers at a, a masjid. People line up toe to toe to toe. So it's a community prayer. And I think that's the, the same thing's true of the marked prayer times, is even if I'm all by myself at my house with a prayer rug, I am in a communal prayer with other people who are praying at the same time in the same direction. So that embodied communal sense of prayer is something I envy. Yeah. That experience or that communal identity also, at least in my experience with Islam, um, sort of is expansive. I work in refugee resettlement a little bit. And so I get to work with a lot of uh, Muslim communities and populations in the level of hospitality and graciousness mm. and community identity in those, um, that that makes me envious. And in my worst days, puts me mm. to shame a little bit in how I embody my own Christian hospitality. Oh, and let's just touch that, what you said. It's not always shame, but uh, right, one of my heroes, Richard Rohr, says he asks God for one good humiliation every day. I think, oh, he has to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is a sense in which I think when holy envy is working well, it doesn't matter what side you're on is you you find something that makes you a little ashamed because you know it's in your tradition, but they're doing it so much better <laughs> or they seem to be doing it so much better. So uh, that might be holy shame, I like Sam. That. I think you just invented a new one. Yeah, that, that book may not sell as well, but I think it may be uh, <laughs> true in some ways. Uh, well, let's talk about one that um, – at least my the version of Christianity that I came out of, I don't think developed a very healthy understanding of Judaism. Um, and so I'm curious when you approach Judaism, what are you envious of or what do you appreciate? Well, I do lead with holy shame there. I mean, I at teaching world religions, I knew I knew about Christian responsibility, you know toward Judaism, but I got such a dose of that. So um, I have Jewish friends who said, fine, get over it now. Let's keep talking. So what I what I most appreciate about Judaism is the emphasis on practice, um, that if you ask three Jews what they believe about X, Y, or Z, there is tremendous leeway in terms of belief, but practice um, is where things can become very orderly. I, I looked up a a midrash from the seventh century where it's attributed to the deity who said, if only they had forsaken me and kept my Torah. In other words, it's, it's the behavior, the love of God, of neighbor, of stranger that is key in Judaism and not what I think. Um, as a Christian who comes from traditions where it matters very much what I think, my eternal salvation may depend on what I think. I was um, envious and embracing of Judaism's focus, tight focus on how do you live? How do you live? 
Yeah, that was really eye-opening for me, um, both since we, uh, to some degree, share uh, some Hebrew scriptures with uh, our Jewish neighbors, and then Jesus coming out of that context and not presuming um, belief onto what he was saying. I think that helped me embody a little more humility, even in how I read my own tradition and scriptures. Isn't that wonderful? See, just like you, I can read the scriptures differently because of this this lineup we've just been through. Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. You know, when, when the great separation occurs, it won't have anything to do with belief. It'll have to do with cups of water and, and clothes put on a, a naked person's back. It'll have to do with visiting those in prison. I just think that's a very Jewish teaching. Yeah, and it's... Uh... It stretches and challenges me again in that, uh, maybe in that holy shame way or that holy embarrassment way to, <laughs> to think less about my belief and more about my embodiment and my practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's do uh, at least one more, and that's one that's on my mind um, and one that I was the least familiar with up until um, maybe just a couple months ago, and that's Sikhism, uh, which I just talked to someone, the interview, this right, the interview before you. Uh, was a woman from the Sikh Coalition, and she gave us the basics of Sikhism. Uh, and I was just, my mind was blown. I was envious. It was wonderful. So I wonder what you uh, draw out of that faith tradition. I have much less experience uh, in terms of visiting communities. All I know is you said it right. It's Sikh, which goes against all my impulses. I want to say Sikh. Um, but when I did take student groups to a Gurdwara in Atlanta, I was bowled over, first of all, by how Early on in its history, it accepted women and men in leadership. Um, men and women covered their heads. More than that, when I arrived with students on a van and found out people from that community had been there since early that morning cooking a meal for us, because that's always part of welcoming strangers, I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't think of the reverse happening if, if they had requested uh, a site visit to to my community. So the hospitality knocked me out. And then, you know, I would love to hear your previous guest, but also the idea that the, the living gurus are now done and that the book itself um, is, is the living guru. That's a fascinating idea to me. Yeah. I, I, as you talk about the, the meal preparation, I think about, you know, the the box of cookies and the, the old coffee that would probably be served in most of the churches that I, I have been a part of. <laughs> it's because we're dumb, you know, at least where I live, it's Christianity's dominant. So we've gotten lazy. We've just gotten so lazy because nobody, you know, really works too hard at thinking everything depends on how we represent our tradition. It's, uh, I don't know. I have friends in Japan who are Christian and that makes them 1% of the population. And I can't help but imagine that would make a terrific difference in practice and, and their relationships in community with people who aren't Christian. Yeah. For all of the anxiety in church circles or Christian circles about the decline of uh, church attendance and Christianity in the United States, I'm kind of excited to see what comes out of that in the sense of how we actually embody our faith post-dominance. I think we're a ways from that, but it, it, it seems to be sort of on the horizon. Yeah, it's it's true. I, I never want to sound too facile with that because I know there are people in terrible grief mm. about what's being lost. But I have a, a big trust, a robust trust in the Holy Spirit to 
to keep moving. And like you, I'm excited about some of the new ways that'll be expressed. Yeah. Even if it makes me obsolete. <laughs> that's very true. I will need to find alternate employment probably, but uh, that's <laughs> the least of the, the problems, I suppose. Um, well, were there any traditions that I didn't mention? I was just thinking of the big ones in my head, but um, obviously there are more faith traditions. Anything that I didn't hit that is worth uh, noting any envy on? I think you were wise to include Sikhism because that doesn't traditionally show up on college curricula as one of the big five, but it, in, in this country, it's it's very important. So Native American tradition, I mention only because I live on land that was um, taken from the Cherokee. And what I admire about the Lakota and Cherokee traditions I know a little bit about is they're not text-based. It's like the opposite of Sikhism as we were talking about. But I, I would have students say, give me a good book on Native American tradition. And usually I'd say, well, there's a sweat lodge Saturday night you could go to, but it's, you have to be there. It's a, you have to be there tradition. And, and I love that. I envy that. We can't hand you a book. You know, there's not a creed. There's not a, we can hand you an autobiography, but there's not going to be a manual on how to do this. I admire that. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, I, again, to just draw my own context, I was never taught um, of Native. I was never taught that Native American spirituality and religious tradition was in the same category as other religious traditions. Like it was taken less seriously, and that's a, a silly and sort of insulting assumption um, mm. for us to make. Mm. Well, um, as you write and sort of look at those traditions, um, you, you embody empathy really well and, and understanding. And I didn't write down the quote and I'm kicking myself for it, but you talk <laughs> about how you were, um, lovingly chastised by a scientist, uh, one time about <laughs> assuming you knew what they meant. Um, can you, I can fill this in for you, please Sam. Please do. Please answer. Please tell my question and then answer my question as well. <laughs> well, I got very interested in science and religion and, and you know, like lots of Christians, was just going to town with some of the discoveries of the new physics. And I ended up writing a little book called The Luminous Web about that. And this lovely, um, was he, he was the theoretical physicist. He wrote me an admonishing letter and said, it's not enough for you to think you know what physicists mean when they say things. You need to know what they think they mean when they say things. And that's a little long-winded, but it means I cannot assume when when I see people bowing down before a golden statue of the Buddha that they're worshiping the Buddha. That's what it looks like to me. But when I ask them, they'll say, no, we're honoring the historic example of a human being who lived this way. So that's how I've taken it into the study of world religions is it's not enough for me to, to do the taste like chicken thing, you know, Oh, that's just like the Christian Trinity. Oh, that's just like the Christian notion of this or that. That's not enough. I have to know what they mean when they say something or do something. Yeah, to me, that um, is both beautiful and deeply intimidating <laughs> because I feel like, uh, and this is one of my hesitations when I think about exploring other religious traditions, is I feel like I've spent my entire life in various versions of Christianity, studied it, seminary, all those things, and feel like I am just now in some ways getting to some of the like, the goodness mm -hmm. of it or the nuance of it. And I'm so mm -hmm. intimidated to even begin to try to understand what other people mean when they talk about their belief and practice. 
Did you feel that mm-hmm. kind of intimidation? Did you work through it? Uh, any any resonance with what I'm feeling here? Yes, and it goes to what we were saying earlier about why stick with your tradition because it's taken all this time, right, to get to the nuances to the to the finer points. I didn't try to get over that. I just owned it and let it humiliate me. And it also um, put me in a place of receiving hospitality, which ended up tenderizing me far more than offering hospitality. Someone said to me, the hand that gives is always higher than the hand that receives. And I thought, oh, so when I am a, a awkward stranger in these places, I'm the lower hand. And people can offer me things that I can't accept when I have the upper hand. So so I didn't really try to get over the awkwardness. I, I tried to make it funny when I could because it was sure the joke was on me. But but it also occurred to me, I'm part of a dominant group, so isn't it my turn you know, to, to be the one who's clueless, who doesn't have any idea what I'm supposed to do next? I, I don't know if you're talking about physically being in a space or just trying to get your mind around a concept, but either way, best to admit our beginnerness, right? Yeah, absolutely. And when you phrase it that way, I realize that um, it's my own like selfish insecurities that keep me from really... Uh, being willing to be wrong, I think, or embarrass myself uh, is really what I'm fearful of. I think stupid's the word we're reaching for is. here. Yep. Holy stupidity, <laughs> if that's a thing. Oh, we've got a whole series coming out. Yep, there we go. Oh, um, I want to sort of change pace, but not really. There's a quote that you uh, that you said that really stuck out to me, and I'd love to just hear you talk more about it. I'm not even sure if I have a question, but... Uh, you said, as natural as it may be to want to play on the winning team, the wish to secure divine favoritism strikes me as the worst possible reason to practice any religion. Um, yeah. Can you can you unpack that? I love it. Yeah, I think I was in a really bad mood when I wrote that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> but I had, I had it, it came in response to a story I'd heard you know, about someone who had preached a pretty decent sermon about there being the God, God was not limited by, by our delineation of our traditions. And somebody came up afterwards and said to her something like, if Christianity isn't the best religion, what am I doing here anyhow? And uh, so I just, uh, just struck me wrong, you know, and I just read a story about this wonderful Muslim saint woman from way back when who was caught running through the streets of Basra with a torch in one hand and a pail of water in the other. And somebody asked her what she was doing. And she said she was praying to God to use the water to put out her fears of hellfire and to use the torch to set fire to her imagination of heaven so that she could love God for God's sake alone. And I had holy envy of that. That just bowled me over as as the best possible love of God. Burn up heaven and douse the fires of hell and let me just love you without fear of punishment or, or hope of reward. Yeah, talk about being envious of other traditions. If you can take heaven and hell out of the picture, that uh, I think that changes the approach. And I, I, I love that. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um. One thing you mentioned when you talk about holy envy is that not all, and this may be my paraphrase, uh, that not all holy envy is helpful. Um, what, what do you imagine when you, when you think of unhelpful holy envy or maybe some unhelpful ways to embody 
exploring other faith traditions or religious traditions? Oh, yeah. If I take Holy off the front of it, because that through Christer Stendhal's brilliance, that's what changes the envy into something else, a kind of sacred desire. But but I I had traveled and been curious for a long time before I became any kind of scholar about the world's religions. And I now look back and realize I was a spiritual shoplifter. I just sort of took what I wanted and bought things and brought home treasures and lined them up on my shelves like, you know, the colonialist of all time. So so I, I do think there's are unhelpful ways to be attracted to other traditions that can end up trying to assimilate them. You, know, you kind of draw them into yourself and and say a lot about we are all one. I even had a Jew say to a friend of mine, we don't want to be all one. We, do, we want to be different from you. Thank you so much for wanting us all to be one. So there's a kind of assimilation that's dangerous. There's definitely a kind of appropriation that's dangerous. We could talk a while about satyrs and Christian churches on, on Maundy Thursday and what happens when a Jewish ritual is um, repurposed in ways that would make it unrecognizable to Jews. And then I'm, I'm playing around the idea of forgery. I mean, is there some way you just sort of take the metal from another religious tradition and melt it down and put your own stamp on it? But the ego, the ego can certainly turn this envy into something that is unholy and not helpful at all. Yeah. When you started to talk about that, um, that Christian sort of stealing a practice of, uh, of a Seder. I turn around and I think um, how put off folks would be if another faith tradition took the Eucharist and said, this isn't Christ, this is then whatever. We, we would probably be pretty up in arms or put off by that. And so I don't know why we feel the, uh, the latitude to, to do the same with their traditions. See, you just put your finger, that's an empathic thing you just did, which is when you flip it around and say, how would I feel if if someone did this to mine? I mean, even when I think about having had four class sessions to present each of the major religions of the world, I found myself thinking, what would I want a Buddhist to say in four class sessions on Christianity? I mean, the absurdity of it. You know, how deep could you go in four class sessions? So it helps a lot to turn it around like that. Yeah, to use your example, you know, what if someone came to a, a communion service where they could keep the cup or just decided to keep the cup and the little piece of bread and take it home and put it on a shelf and say, I visited a Christian church and I and I brought this back. Yeah, that's, uh, it feels absurd, yet uh, I often feel the impulse to, to do that uh, with other faith traditions. <laughs> um, so you've made it very clear, which I appreciate that, uh, the all religions are the same sort of argument is not, uh, helpful or even anywhere close to accurate. Um, I wonder how you feel about the statement though, that, um, I don't even know how to say it. I've been wrestling with this just sort of internally for a while, uh, that faith traditions and religions are, uh, exploring the same reality that we happen to call God or transcendence or enlightenment. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that feel more accurate or more appropriate? Yes. And again, there are people I, I respect a great deal who talk about the perennial philosophy, you know, Houston Smith, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, um, Rami Shapiro, Mirabai Starr. I've got a lot of people, both scholarly and, 
and who write more popularly who talk about what is the same about all religions is is the the search to transcend the self, the small self, the the the, the little I, the ego. And I, I will recognize that as being common to every religion I know anything about. It's about getting out of the prison of the small self. Um, and I've also heard the Dalai Lama add that what all religions have in them is a way to deal with destructive emotions of our wish to do harm to ourselves or other people or the earth. And I think that's a pretty good thing that religions have in common. Um, so I, I, the perennial philosophy that they are getting at the same thing, they're all pointing to the moon, but they're using different fingers to point there. That doesn't equal them all being the same, but, but the, the human impulse to get beyond me to something greater seems like the heart of them. Yeah. All. Yeah. Um, my wife is a psychologist and she somewhere along the way when she was in grad school, when they start talking about religion, um, she pointed out, and I, I will put a disclaimer in here. I am notorious for grossly uh, misphrasing her <laughs> psychological insights. So big disclaimer here. Um, but she talked about how uh, most religious or all religious traditions to some extent are psychologically useful. Uh, mm -hmm. So regardless of even what we think about the truth claims of them, they mm -hmm. help us as human beings grapple with what it means to exist and to, to wrestle with our complex emotions and realities. Isn't that true? See, if we jump all the way back to the beginning of this conversation, if our, quote, interfaith dialogue, end quote, could be about that, it'd be so much more interesting. You know, n not... I don't know, not the things we tend to talk about. How do you see salvation? You know, do you believe in an afterlife? But if we could talk about that, mm. you know, how does this tradition help me live in a, in a more fruitful, generous way? Those discussions would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And that is oftentimes what draws me back to that Christian well. There are a lot of mm -hmm. days where I'm not really sure what I believe, but I know mm -hmm. that when I sit in uh, a lot of different church services that I feel connected to love in a way that I don't when I'm sitting in my house by myself. Um, <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, a couple more questions for you here. Um, I wonder as you have kind of walked around these other religious traditions, how it has affected or maybe changed the way that you describe or talk about, or dare I even say define God? Uh, what's that mm. been like? I think I'm much more respectful um, of God. I think God is much less captive to to my adjectives than before. I even find the word itself a bit of a cipher because it's such an old familiar word to me that I just can't get away with an old guy with a white beard on a cloud. So it's really difficult to release <laughs> deity from my own projections, which we do, right? But Soren Kierkegaard said, if you think you understand, it isn't God. And I think I've become much more willing to float in a kind of trust and faith in qualities, um, attributes of the divine 
without needing to press that into a lot of definition. So it has changed the way I define God because I do less defining. Um, it's almost a Christian cliche, isn't it, that it's up to God to define me? <laughs> but I, um, I do find myself just more reluctant to put language around the sacred, the divine. And I even find myself reaching for those words, which will become equally old in their time. But Hinduism has that, by the way. The concept of Brahman is beyond any deity, any god or goddess. Brahman is essentially indefinable, the source, the essence of, of all that is, and ineffable. Um, so so that, that has changed. I'm, I'm much more reluctant to describe or define. Yeah. Though, though, yeah. Yeah, that's that to me and I think to a lot of folks is really deeply appealing. Uh and in a lot of ways your book is kind of an invitation into that. Um in a very humble way. You're not heavy-handed. Uh you're sort of articulating your own experience and your own envy and I think that sort of vicariously made me envious and want to uh go down that journey a little more. So I wonder where you would recommend folks start. Obviously, they, they should absolutely read the book. Um, but we can't all take your class. I don't even think you're teaching the class anymore. So <laughs> where's a great place for us to begin to to meander around uh, in holy envy? Oh, first, you just said the, the most wonderful thing to me you could say, that, that it makes you want to explore more. I did include a bibliography at the back. It's not onerous. Uh, and there are a lot of ways in there. Even there are even some wonderful websites there. Anyone listening could do worse than to go to www.pluralism.org, which will take them to Harvard to the Pluralism Project, where they can learn about the United States of America and about the incredible religious diversity that's here with videos and interviews and music. Um, that's in the bibliography, um, along with you know, classical books, some newer books, um, but it, uh, don't ever say I said this, just stand in the bookstore and copy down some things off the building <laughs> and then you can decide later whether you want to buy the book. Uh, but what I have found is just like this wonderful ball of yarn. If you just get a hold of it anywhere, you'll find yourself drawn in. You'll find your own resources. But there there are a lot of crummy things on the web, too. There are a lot of things you think are telling you about world religions, and they, they really have got a trap in them. They're about to tell you that only one is right. So Yeah, it's important to try to unpack the assumptions of what we're reading about other faiths, because it, yeah. uh, it can, yes, be problematic at times. <laughs> well, um, by the time this interview is released. The book will be available. And so folks should absolutely um, give that a read and not just steal the bibliography information. <laughs> they're welcome to. Oh, that's right. They don't have to copy it down anymore. They can take a picture, right? That's very true. Yes. You're just making this easier. I'm not sure your publisher is going to be very happy with how this is wrapping up. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you could edit that part out. <laughs> um, anything else, anywhere else folks could keep up with you or, or follow you. I know that, um, folks find your work and your articulation of faith so appealing oh thank you uh i i, I very lamely keep a website um that's just my full name barbarabrowntaylor.com and uh, harper one my publisher kindly keeps a facebook page going um on my website there's a list of places i'll be especially places i'll be with this book and they're 
good many on the West Coast and a lot in the Southeast. So I would love to see any of your listeners then, and they should tell me they met me through you. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, I very much think they will come and uh, visit with you and and hear you talk more in person about that. And I am really grateful to be able to talk uh, virtually with you. It's been wonderful uh, and insightful and stretching and encouraging. Uh, So thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Welcome.